You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome this morning to America's Web Radio. I'm Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. Normally on this program, we've been talking about health insurance reform. How do we change the system from a government-controlled or Obamacare, looking past Obamacare to a potential repeal and replace legislation? The core of our program is to talk about the future and what the future might look like in health insurance reform and health care reform. But as anybody listening to this program on a real-time basis knows, we've got bigger problems in this country right now that we've got to solve. We are at war with the coronavirus. And the last couple of weeks, I've tried to turn attention to that. After all, this is health care insight, not just health insurance insights. So I want to continue today and talk about a number of issues. I've been through a lot over many years. I've been very fortunate to be involved in Washington, D.C. I worked with people on both sides of the political aisle. I was a senior fellow at Newt Gingrich's Center for Health Transformation, helped him start it, helped him build it up until he uh, dismantled it uh, when he ran for president. I've also worked with Ted Kennedy on the Democratic side on mental health issues. I've worked with Patrick Kennedy. I've worked with the Carter Center. So I know a lot about politics. I am a self-admitted political junkie. And hopefully uh, my expertise and my career has already been around health care and health insurance. So I want to focus today on a slightly different aspect because as we seem to be coming out of this coronavirus trend. And I've been monitoring the trends. As an actuary, I've been following the numbers and trying to see how their models are. Because after all, this whole thing, this whole country shutdown was based on a model. It wasn't based on the number of deaths from coronavirus. At the time we shut down, we only had a couple hundred, and it wasn't even as many as died from influenza. In fact, that was one of the arguments typically used to kind of ignore the whole situation. But it was the models, the models that were done in academic centers around the country in government with government resources that said we we're going to have potentially two million lives died if the politicians didn't do something. That's what drove all this shutting down of the government. So it wasn't the number of deaths at the time, but the projected number of deaths. Well, I spent my whole life in modeling and projections and analytics. And I've been through a lot in my life, fortunately and unfortunately. I've been through recessions. I've been through major political calamities with um, uh, President Kennedy dying, being shot, Robert Kennedy being shot, Martin Luther King being shot, been through a number of economic downturns, recessions, all sorts of problems that this country has faced. And so what I'd like to do, and it's really stepping out of my, um, my normal realm, but I want to talk about where we're going, where we're likely to go in a number of these areas. I've consulted with all the major players around the healthcare table, and I've been involved with academics for a long time. And one of the things actuaries typically do is try to predict risk, and in some ways, try to predict the future with modeling. So I'm going to try to 
go beyond that. And it's really hard sometimes when you're talking about what's going to happen. Let's get past the current day and look a month, two months, six months, a year, five years down the road. Strategically, what should we be thinking about? What are some of the issues we might face? I know in the middle of a crisis, it's hard to think about the future. It's hard to figure out where we're going and what we might be able to do. How are our lives change? So I'm going to give my perspective. It's difficult to make predictions because this video will still be there. Later on, somebody looked back and said he didn't know what the heck he was talking about. Well, it doesn't really matter. What I want to do is put some thoughts in your head for you to be thinking about. Just give you some ideas and some direction and some areas to think about as to how it might affect you, your family, your career, your community, your investments even. So let's talk about some of the players. Let's talk about what happens after all this is over with the medical community. And let's just start with talking about doctors. How's it going to change? What's our feeling going to be about doctors as we move in the future? Well, I would contend that there are a number of areas that we're going to think about more seriously as we move into the future around the medical community. First of all, it'd be great appreciation, of course, for what they've done, both doctors and nurses and all the help at the hospital, the cleaning staff who cleans the banisters and the doorknobs, the handles and keeps us protected. They're part of the, the fight as well. They may be foot soldiers in the war with the doctors and nurses being higher up the scale as far as patient, direct patient care. But I think we're going to realize more effectively and more focused on the shortages of doctors that exist in this country. That if you predict the aging of the population, the baby boomers are already there. We've got, I don't know what it is, five, ten thousand almost a day that have been retiring into Medicare and Social Security benefits. But the rest of the population will continue to age in even after we get past that baby boom bubble. And what does that mean? That means as people get older, they get sicker typically and they're going to need more care. At the same time, we've been running out of doctors. We've been searching the world to bring nurses to the United States. So I think the shortage of care providers is going to be a big issue as we move forward. And maybe more of an emphasis on support for medical schools, on expanding the number of doctors and nurses in the pipeline. But I think we may go beyond that. I think we may recognize that there are a lot of healthcare professionals and ancillary providers that can do the work necessary to take care of patients. And maybe we'll start to break down some of the guild wars so that nurses can't do some things unless a doctor is there, but a nurse can do it. A psychologist can do a number of things. They can prescribe psychotropic medications uh, for mental illnesses and anxiety. But no, they have to have an MD. They have to be a psychiatrist or get the approval from an MD that may not even know the case. Uh, we may be moving into telemedicine where more doctors are able to take care of patients uh, via telemedicine. We may be expanding that same trend that's growing with telemedicine. We may expand that in the concierge services. So I think our relationship between the doctor and the patient is going to change dramatically. And I think we're going to rethink the whole supply 
and care um, given by doctors. And while doctors may also expand and do more outpatient services, whether it's surgeries, whether it's care and treatment of various illnesses or diseases, I think we're going to find as a whole new interpretation of what a medical practitioner is and the licensing that may limit people from getting into the area. So we'll see where that goes, but I think that's some of the aspects you can be thinking about. I also think that when we finish with this, there's going to be a time where the current providers just have burnout. You know, there's a lot of people coming back in for this temporary crisis that are retired, that have left the profession because the reimbursements got too low, the paperwork got to be too low. And so I think we're going to see a whole redefinition of using technology to help doctors stay in the profession and not retire as early as they are currently today and overcome some of the burnout that they have. You know, it's really difficult today to even get something that's a non-COVID case um, dealt with in the hospital because the beds are all taken up and your exposure in the hospital may be worse than what you're going in. So there's been no elective surgeries. And a lot of doctors have been transitioning over to help with the COVID because there's a set process and procedure for that. And the doctors tell me it's really not all that complicated. Just takes a lot of doctors on hand to be helpful uh, at the time. So there's a lot of cardiologists, oncologists, um, all sorts of other specialists that right now are kind of sitting on the sidelines and they don't have anybody in their office. They don't have anything scheduled. So we'll see where all that goes. But I think that we will find a, a dramatic change in the provider community. Well, what about hospitals? How's that going to change? Well, we're finding out we don't have enough beds in time of crisis. So my guess is that we might see an expansion of beds. And what's prevented that in the past has been something called a certificate of need. In many states, there's a requirement that in order for a hospital to expand or for a new hospital to come into the marketplace, they have to get an approval from state agencies. Now, that's been pared back a little bit in some states over the last few years, but the reality is many states still require a limitation on what doctors can be put into the system. So we'll see where that uh, winds up um, transpiring as well. Where else are changes going to happen for the hospital community? Well, I think what we're going to realize is that everything doesn't need to be done in the hospital, that we have more outpatient services, I mean, if we can build temporary hospitals, we can move many services, surgeries even, to more outpatient services, outpatient environments. So I think what will happen is uh, hospitals become for the uh, intensive care, the high level of care, chronic and persistent cases that need to be dealt with with the specialists. But more and more things need to be done outside the hospital. We've been moving that trend for a long time, but I think this will accelerate it because we're realizing that um, if we can build temporary hospitals and temporary clinics to deal with the coronavirus, that a lot more things can be done outside the hospital. So the regulations that exist to prevent that, I think, will be we've lessened over time. Well, let's take a look at insurers. What about the insurer community? Well, we know that many of them have stepped up to the plate and provided 
additional coverage for the coronavirus. They dropped deductibles and co-pays originally, and then they ultimately dropped the cost of any uh, treatments for anybody going into the hospital. So there's no deductibles, no co-pays, no co-insurance. And if you're even uninsured and you go into the hospital, you'll have everything covered. So if you had a limited coverage policy that may not have covered some of those, you're going to get covered. So they've stepped up and done those things. And so I think we're going to see some catastrophic special illness uh, policies developed, uh, some riders maybe that would be put on a normal insurance policy to figure out um, what kind of coverage you might have in the kind of a pandemic. So I think there'll be more of a coverage there. Um, I think the unfortunate part for the insurers is that people really don't know what they're covered for. Insurance can be complicated and we don't think about it much. And the insurer is actually going to wind up in pretty good shape because most elective surgeries are being delayed. So the cost of a lot of medical care is not being generated. That insurers will be responsible for under insurance policy coverages. They're all being delayed. Now, maybe it'll all come back and there'll be an overload in the fall. But the reality is that one of the reasons I think the insurance company stepped up and said we cover so much of coronavirus cases is because that's the only thing being treated in hospitals right now. If the insurance companies, as an example, just said, well, that's excluded. We're not going to cover the pandemic. They would have almost no claims. There's nothing going on in the hospital except for the coronavirus. So I think the things are going to change dramatically for the insurance companies in uh, areas like a pandemic and how it's covered. Some might get cutesy and try to exclude it, but I think most companies and most uh, regulations are going to wind up requiring coverage of pandemics, much like has happened here, because we could have this again. And I'll talk about that in later sessions about what I think might happen in the future with other pandemics and why I think we're actually very lucky I know it's hard to think about that, but I think we're very lucky to have this pandemic right now because it is not the worst pandemic that could occur. The worst is still out there, and I'll describe it uh, later in this hour. So stick with me. Let's go to commercial, and we'll be right back and talk more about the coronavirus and its impact on the future and how we might look back six months, a year from now, and find how things have changed. So stick with me as we take a look into the future in the next session. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to America's Web Radio. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. And today, we're talking about anticipating the future, projecting what might happen, what the world might look like, what the impact would be on some of our key stakeholders in the healthcare area. Let's go on beyond the healthcare environment and talk about our economy in general. Some of the economic segments. What's going to happen to restaurants? Many of you have restaurants around your home. I happen to live here in Florida in a resort community. And restaurants and boating and beach activities, all those things are closed down. Not allowed to go out on the beach. Not allowed to... Go swimming, you are allowed to go boating, that is an exclusion, so there are people out fishing. But so many of the restaurants are closed down except for drive-through. Few of them have pickup services. But that industry is being devastated across the country. 
to see it very personally here in town where there's so many restaurants. Well, I think the uh, $2.2 trillion economic package is going to help a lot of them to get some monies to keep their businesses running. Uh, restaurant business is a tough business. Many of them go out of business because they are just don't have good food, don't have good service, get a bad reputation. I don't know what the average life of a restaurant is, but uh, I see a lot of turnover even in this community. And usually it's pretty easy early on to figure out which ones aren't going to make it. But it's a tough business with uh, relatively low margins. So what's going to happen? I think that as soon as the signal to go in this economy is given, just like we saw after 9-11, you're going to see politicians come out and say, it's your patriotic duty to go out and eat, spend money at the restaurant to get them back up and running, to be able to tip the um, servers to be able to help people get jobs. It's one of the biggest industries in the country. I also think there's likely to be an economic package that many have been talking about, and that is to change the business tax deductibility for restaurants and entertainment. That's been on or off over the years, and it's really where if a business goes out to lunch, that they can take that lunch expense as a tax deduction, so the government is subsidizing business lunch. Now, it got to be called a three martini lunch because there was a lot of abuse going on in past years at times. And many times, some of the higher-end restaurants, the only people were business people. In fact, that's still today even without the deduction. But I think there'll be a big emphasis on trying to get people to get back to restaurants and go out to eat, whether it's fast food places or the mom-and-pop restaurant. Whatever it is, I think there'll be a big move uh, to help the restaurant industry. I think one of the more interesting things to take a look at is the manufacturing industry. So much of our manufacturing was taken overseas to China, to India, because it was cheap labor. They were paying pennies an hour. And so we moved over there in order to have a, a cheaper product to be sold in the United States. But what's really happened is that we became overly dependent in so many ways on foreign production, on foreign capabilities, especially with China. And you all have heard the reports and the political analysis that China has us has the ability to blackmail us on things like drugs that are being put together in China. Now, in many cases, many of the goods that are put together in China, uh, the parts are coming from other places around the world, and China just assembles it. Well, I think the CEOs of American companies are pretty smart. What they're going to wind up coming to the conclusion is they have to bring some of those capabilities back home. That manufacturing capability may be a little more expensive because we've got more rules and regulations and safety issues and healthcare uh, coverages and all sorts of expenses here at home that you might not have abroad. But the reality is it's going to have to come home so that when we have problems or issues, we have those capabilities to produce those products here at home in the United States of America. You know, Trump was really the first politician to really get back to doing things in the United States. We need to be America first. We don't want to be globalists where we're supporting the production of products around the world just for the good that that would create because it made us vulnerable. So we put tariffs on steel as an example so that our steel industry uh, could be brought back home. 
you saw that, I think, originally not for the pure economics of it, but because it's a national security issue. We have to have steel in order to build our tanks, our planes, our ships. But I think now we're seeing how important the pharmaceutical industry is to have those capabilities uh, here in the United States. And I think many CEOs, whether it's car manufacturers, whether it's uh, any other kind of a industry that is has moved stuff overseas, is going to say, I need to at least have a redundancy capability in the United States. I need to have a backup. They may wind up pulling a whole lot more back because of artificial intelligence and robotics makes it more possible to do things here in the United States at a cheaper level than if it was pure manpower. So I think manufacturing is going to have a big boost. But what does that mean for the middle class? I think it's going to be a great boon to the middle class. Yes, there's going to be a lot of robotics and artificial intelligence used to replace a lot of pure manual labor. That's already been done in the auto industry and many other areas, whether it's UPS pulling stuff off of off of um, or Amazon pulling stuff off of shelves or it's UPS making deliveries uh, with drones or whatever. All that's going to happen. That's the trend that's been going on. But I think bringing manufacturing means that there are manual skills that are necessary. There are people who don't have to be uh, computer whizzes or technology uh, engineers or whatever to actually do the job. There's going to be a lot of manual labor that's needed, and that's good middle-class jobs with, with good wages. So I think we're going to see a middle-class rebound. And I think what the political side of that is going to be the discussion of a blue-collar uh, boom. They're starting to use that term uh, before all this happened, and I think it's going to be the emphasis that the reason why most of the um, uh, $2.2 trillion um, uh, recovery package uh, really focuses on lower income. It's about as progressive as it could possibly be. Wealthy people are not going to get any part of this money. Yeah, some business owners are going to get funds so they can keep their employees on hand. But for the most part, the money is going to small businesses and individuals and even through the uh, tax um, refund that's coming to everybody. That's, you know, everybody under, I think it's $100,000. So I think we're going to see a real resurgence of the middle class and a resurgence of manufacturing. Now, what about some other parts of the the economy? I think the big thing that's going to happen over the summer is the resurgence of sports. Uh, we may see some baseball games because we're going to have 50,000 people sitting next to each other. Uh, that may take a little longer uh, through the summer, but certainly the football season by the fall is going to, um, I think, be up and running in a very robust way. Um, you see where some of the golf tournaments or big crowds around the um, uh, the golf courses are being put off. Uh, the Masters have been put off, I think, until November. So I think, you know, a large part of enjoying life in the United States and around the world is, um, is sports activities. Uh, following your favorite sports team, going to your sporting events, and they're usually enormous crowds. Uh, many of the football stadiums for college football are 100,000 or more people in the stands. So I think by the time we get to the fall and the football season in particular, it's going to be pretty wide open for people to um, gather in those types of areas. You're not going to change the seats and sell every other seat in a football stadium, I don't believe. I think we're just going to have it open uh, for sports activities and other activities, whether it's uh, NASCAR races or 
um, whatever it is, uh, tennis activities, soccer activities. But I think in order to get back to the um, um, enjoyment that Americans have with sports activities, it's an idea of we've got to get back to um, our normal life and those things that we enjoy on the side as well as work, uh, but it's play and pleasure as well. So we'll see where that goes. And I think there's going to be a lot of interest in what happens with the baseball season since that normally would start in April. Will it be delayed? Will they have a half season? Um, I think for the most part, all the modeling shows that by June 1st, pretty much we'll be down to less than uh, 200, less than 100 uh, deaths by April, excuse me, by August. Uh, we're supposed to be down to basically zero. We'll see what kind of impact the warmer weather has as well, which should open up the, um, the marketplace. And it'll be really interesting to see how people are um, recognized to be able to go back to work, that they have had immunity, that they've had it, and now they cannot carry it, nor can they pass it along. And I'm not sure about the rest of us that um, have been isolated and haven't gotten it. Um, does that make us still susceptible to it? Is there going to be uh, a vaccine? Uh, an immunization shot available at some point, or do we just worry over the next year that there might be some sort of a therapy if we should get it? Um, it's going to be a fascinating thing as to how we open up this economy. I think one of the other big issues around travel that may come out is that most of us, like myself, haven't been able to see my grandkids um, that live at distant locations. So I think we're going to see a lot of um, road travel. Um, we're going to see a lot of airline travel. So I do think the airlines will come back pretty fast as pent-up demand uh, for people to go and visit relatives and friends. But, you know, I also think there's a um, an awareness that comes from a, um, a disaster like this, that life is short and that you need to do and see things that maybe you've always wanted to see. Uh, that bucket list that you've kept in the back of your mind, or you just now started to think about it, that I need to get out and do some things different because if I was one of the unfortunate ones to catch this virus and went into a hospital and didn't make it, I would have missed all that. So I think there's going to be a need to um, get out and travel and, and see the world and what's going on and what's happening uh, so that I can enjoy some of that vacation time, whether that's some extra time off, spending more time with my family, and that'll affect the work environment as well. I think we're talking about much more um, working from home, working on the computer, working from any location. Uh, I actually have two sons now that before all this occurred actually can operate their businesses from any remote place in the world. My one son was in Taiwan when all this came down. Um, another son can live close to the business or live at a distance from the business and carry on his activities just like he was he was here. So it really doesn't matter. They can anywhere the internet is available, uh, they can operate. And I think so many businesses and so many employees and so many sole proprietors or or uh, individual contractors are able to do their business these days because so much of it is uh, computer oriented, internet oriented, uh, programming related, um, and virtual office visits and meetings, staying connected can be done uh, through the internet, through video conferencing. All that's been going on for a good while, but I think once we all were isolated and we had to do that, 
We found the ways to do that, whether it's through Zoom or GoToMeeting, uh, all sorts of technology and programs we developed and promoted for businesses to be able to do that in a very secure way. And so I think it's going to change the way business is actually done, which is going to, again, be good for the economy, be good for lifestyle, and um, get us out of our normal routine and um, maybe save a lot of companies a lot of money on rental space, on office space that they'd have to otherwise have, and actually be able to get people out into the um, hinterlands where their customers are, spend more time with customers, and check back with the office and the work as necessary over the Internet. Many people, we deal with the customers over the Internet. Of course, the hope is that we don't all stay in our isolation um, cells in our offices like this one here and never see anybody in the world doing everything over the Internet. So I think it will free up and create more options. And hopefully that's what will happen. In any case, let's take a break. We'll come back and we'll talk some more about the future uh, after the coronavirus. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to Healthcare Insight. We're taking a little bit of a change today, and we're going to be talking about post the coronavirus. What's the world going to look like? What are some of the industries in the country going to look like? What are the changes you can anticipate? What are some of my thoughts, predictions, if you will, but at least some informed opinions and thoughts for you to consider. Uh, think about yourself. Consider yourself looking back a year or two from now. What would it look like in your home, in your family, in your community? So I want to just put those thoughts out. Not that I'm going to be right or not that I've got some great, fantastic insights. So I don't have a crystal ball. But I've been through enough to be able to anticipate some things and want to the strengths I've had in my career is being able to strategize, to think about the future, look at what the mega trends are, and figure out what might happen down the road so we can take actions today. Let's take a look in this segment about how government might change. Let's start with a question, how are state governments going to be different? Well, I think the answer to that is that we're seeing an evolution of what state responsibilities are and what federalism means in terms of federal control versus state control. We know that after Hurricane Katrina that the federal government didn't get very good marks because at that time the assumption was that states took care of things like hurricanes and local storms, that it was up to the governor well, we have a lot of incompetent governors, and we had one in Louisiana at the time. And so what happened was that the media blamed the federal government and FEMA for not being able to step in, and they weren't really prepared. Maybe they should have had some better role, but they had to scurry pretty fast to help deal with the issues of Katrina and the aftermath. The visual pictures of people on rooftops, of people dying, of people at the uh, Superdome being crammed in there. It was devastating. And so what happened after that was the federal government realized that in terms of hurricanes, they were going to have to have a more significant role. They still weren't the lead, but they had to redo 
the mechanisms between recognizing the state responsibilities and the federal responsibilities. So we've had a number of hurricanes, tornadoes over time. I live here in Florida, and we certainly have had our share. But it's always the state that's the one prepared, with the federal government declaring an emergency and disaster area so that there's some federal funding. Same thing in Louisiana and um, even on the East Coast with um, the East Coast of Florida, or South Carolina, North Carolina. It wasn't an expectation that the federal government would take care of everything and handle all the problems and issues. But the federal government was there as a backup. I think with the pandemic, the recognition is that the state public health service, and I was involved with the state public health service for several years of studying them, analyzing, doing some consulting, and they really didn't have a purpose. They really didn't know how they fit into the rest of the healthcare system in this country, the employer healthcare benefits, the Medicare, Medicaid. They were a separate public health system that really didn't know what their mission was in many cases. Well, we find out in a pandemic what the value is of a good, solid public health system. We find out what the value is of a CDC. And so the lessons that created a stronger FEMA after Katrina and the way it developed over the years since then in response to hurricanes and tornadoes and floods and fires and all sorts of issues they've had to deal with, they became much more organized, but not organized around a pandemic. The pandemic issues that we've had have been recognized more originally from epidemiologists in the Center for Disease Control in Atlanta, doing modeling and having contacts around the world when things like this crop up. But that structure was completely inadequate. They didn't know how to handle things. They didn't really know how to project right. But the system of state-by-state state public health services were not really connected to anything in any substantial way. And so the testing capabilities for something like a pandemic, going through the CDC, they had ancient systems. They weren't prepared to do quick testing. Uh, they see when things pop up, but the rapid nature of this virus, the contagiousness of this virus that swept through the country and swept through the world was not anything that the CDC was prepared for. We didn't have tests like we do now. A month later, they developed tests that give results in five minutes rather than five, 10, 15 days. So I think we're very fortunate in a lot of ways. And we actually ought to, I think, over time, look back and recognize that the role of the federal government is to connect more efficiently with the states through an integrated system and then integrate that with the public sector to be able to handle tests, to distribute medications, to distribute personal protective devices, to distribute ventilators, whatever it's going to take in a pandemic. Somebody has to be able to coordinate that across the country. And FEMA was set up originally by the president as the entity that would do all that controlling. And he set up a task force to try to figure out what we needed 
and be able to be responsive and stay in communication with each of the individual states, which all are on their own path. They all were exposed originally to the virus in different ways, and they were all able to handle it in different ways. So the relationship between the state and the federal government still stays as a federalist system with the states taking the main control and the federal government providing the backup. But I think the federal government has taken on a much stronger role to be sure that when there are gaps, if you have a state that's not very effective, if you have a new governor that really doesn't know what they're doing, has never thought about dealing with a pandemic. And after all, we have some governors right now that are fairly new in the office. And so they haven't figured out everything that they can do in the state. They haven't solved all their problems yet. They didn't anticipate this kind of an issue coming up. Nobody did. But the federal government has a lot of resources, a lot of capability that they can draw on, which is what the president has done, bringing in the military, bringing in the Corps of Engineers, standing up experts, providing models, getting the pharmaceutical industry to help develop some therapies and ultimately some vaccines. So there's a definite stronger role for the federal government. Like it or not, those of us who believe more in the state's rights in this area, you have a nationwide pandemic. It's not isolated to one or two states. Yes, there may be some hot spots, but this is something that can sweep the country and needs a national response in coordination with the states that may have some unique circumstances and issues. And I think that's what's developed. So I think how change, changes will happen at the state level is there will be a recognition of a greater need to coordinate the public health service systems, the community centers, the capabilities to deliver health care to the uninsured or the underinsured, to the people who are getting Medicaid. I think there'll be a stronger coordination of delivery of care uh, across the board. Now, how will the federal government change? Well, I think we're very blessed again to have a Republican president at this point because there were a lot of indications, and there still are many people in high office on the Democratic side that want to nationalize businesses. Well, of course, that would be their socialist dream is to nationalize businesses and then keep them as part of the government control of our economy. This president said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to try to minimize the impact of the federal government takeover. We're going to ask, and while we have the ability to force people to do things and even take them over, we're going to ask them, and they volunteered to deliver on the goods and services. There's only been a few instances where President Trump has ordered a company to produce products because not everybody, not every company has got that kind of patriotic attitude, whether it was GM originally or 3M that created some problems and issues of really trying to help Americans and sending stuff overseas or trying to gouge the public because the federal government was going to pay for ventilators. GM wanted to charge an outrageous amount. And when he promised 10,000 units, that was down from an earlier estimate down to maybe even 6,000. And Trump's like saying, no, you're not giving enough effort. We require you to do this. So I think we're very fortunate that we didn't get 
and have a setup where the federal government would be taking over, even though the federal government was saying, listen, as far as hospitals are concerned, if you treat a patient and they're uninsured, uh, we will reimburse the hospitals directly. That's getting awfully close to a federal takeover of healthcare. And if we'd had somebody else in office, that would have been the foundation for saying, isn't this the most efficient way to handle healthcare costs? Everybody has access and the federal government is going to pay directly cutting out any middlemen. Well, that works in a crisis as an efficient way so that bureaucrats don't take a slice out of the dollars that the federal government's putting up. But that wouldn't work on a bigger, broader range basis. What we do need to do is expand the healthcare insurance industry competition so that we have more companies competing. And we have an entirely healthcare reform, which I'll get into in the uh, next segment. But I think we're going to see substantial changes in the state governments, in the federal government, in the public health care system. I think on the military side, we look at that part of government, that we have seen the federal government activate large parts of our military, whether it was the reserves or other units like the ships that are normally there for combat industries, injuries. They've been activated across the country to move equipment around, to deal with logistics. We've drawn on the expertise of the military in dealing with logistics. They're the world's best. They move equipment all around the world in a very efficient manner. They've got the planes. They've got the staffing. All you got to do is give them the orders, and they're structured to be able to carry out whatever needs to be carried out. So I think the military is a great asset but we don't want military on our streets protecting our businesses and acting as the policemen. We don't want them being like in a, um, a dictatorship. The time goes by when you're having fun. Let's take a quick commercial. We'll be right back with more of this insight into the future of what might happen after the coronavirus uh, passes by and we take a look back a year or two from now. We'll be right back after these commercials. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the final segment of Healthcare Insight. This is Ron Bachman, and you're listening to America's Web Radio. Let's finish up our discussion about the military and uh, how that's going to change over time as we look back maybe a year or two from now. What has all this done to make some changes in how the military interacts Domestically, we always think of the military just being on foreign shores, but not necessarily doing things as close to home as they're being called on to do right now in the coronavirus. And when this is over with, they'll go back to securing the country and dealing around the world. Now, our military also says with the capability of what they're bringing in, uh, several thousand doctors and nurses to help support the doctors and nurses on the front lines in the private market. Uh, they need more support, more doctors and capabilities, as we talked about earlier, that there's just not enough. So the military can do those services, bring them in. And we're told that it doesn't affect our military readiness around the world. But you do have to wonder about that. And you have to hope that nothing crops up from one of our enemies that um, would stir up trouble. 
Uh, fortunately, with everybody dealing with these issues, I think that uh, countries are less likely to try something. But the president said he's ready. And in fact, he's moving military assets to combat another health care issue, and that's the opioid issue uh, that's coming from South America, from some of the countries down there, mainly Colombia. Um, countries like Venezuela, who are teamed up with the drug lords, they've got an illegal uh, government in control, and they've lost their oil revenue. And so how they stay in power, where they get their money at the top to be able to control and run this country is through drug trafficking, human trafficking. And so the president has moved a number of assets, ships, on the Pacific side of Central America and Mexico and on the Caribbean side in order to halt that. So clearly we have a lot of capability and the president is trying to stop pandemics, whether it's the virus or it's opioid, which actually is probably this year going to kill more people than the virus. And so I think it's taking seriously some of the healthcare issues and capabilities that we can put together when the federal government really focuses on a problem or issue. So I think that's going to be a major change in our state government, in our federal government, our public health system. I think the connection of business and the military and how all that's working, has it worked perfectly? No. And so it hasn't worked perfectly. How is the media, how are the newspapers, how are people going to judge what's gone on in the last few months and over the next few months as we wind this down? We reach our peak mid-April and start to decline, and hopefully this thing is pretty much gone by the 1st of June. That's what the models say. The models are wrong. We're going to have some major, major anxieties in this country. So we hope we don't see another round in a series of outbreaks in other communities like New York. That doesn't seem to be what's happening right now. Doesn't seem to be what the situation is. That would be an entirely different scenario. But so far, let's take a look at some of the issues that have been discussed and how they'll be reviewed as time goes by. It may take six months, a year, two years to look back and see what was done right and what was done wrong. Well, clearly what was done wrong, to start with that, is that China kept hidden what actually happened and how serious the problem was. Oh, there's a lot of conspiracy theories about how this even started. We don't know that because China kicked out our reporters. They kicked out the CDC. And we're only now having communications back and forth with limited information. And the Chinese government is still covering up things. We don't even know how many deaths occurred in China. What we do know is that there's a whole lot more crematorium vases that have been ordered in China, more coffins than reported deaths. But we don't really know. There's arguments that it wasn't engineered in a lab, that it occurred naturally in these wet markets where they have bats that people eat over there, the culture is so different that there's a lot of viruses from animals that can make it into humans, and this one was one of the worst. 
There's also a lot of evidence that this thing came from a lab and got leaked out either by a person carrying it out accidentally or they did it on purpose. I don't know. I don't think we will know for a long time, if ever. But clearly, our understanding of what was happening there was very limited because of such a closed society. There were some early indications, and you had the epidemiologists that uh, were putting out generalized warnings. I mean, I heard that even Bill Gates did a TED Talk in 2014 or 15 on the, the problems of a potential pandemic. Well, everybody knew that. I even have talked about that that the worst pandemic we could ever have had, the worst terrorism act that could occur, was a fear that the North Koreans, as an example, would somehow connect smallpox to a virus that was communicated to people and was contagious, that could wipe out tens of millions of people around the world. Probably the most extreme potential terrorist act that could occur, and that's still possible. It's a frightening potential. I've always said for many, many years that the two most frightening potentials for a terrorist would be to spread smallpox around the world in some contagious form. The second most, just to go off on a small tangent, would be that most people don't understand that around the world, around the globe, out in the atmosphere, there is something called the ionosphere. And it's filled with electrical part particles. And if a terrorist organization like North Korea was to set off an atomic bomb in that ionis ionic sphere, it would knock out everything electrical around the world. That's the potential. Every electronic, every power grid, every home appliance would be shut out. We'd be back in the dark ages. So that's easy to talk about. How do you prepare for that? Except to be sure that terrorist organizations don't get nuclear bombs. They can't do that. We're able to shoot them down before they would go off. So electromagnetic pulse is what that's referred to. So yes, there are those potentials. And the potential for a pandemic, one of the blessings when we look at all this death that's going on, we say, why does the Lord allow this to happen? What happened to the Lord of helping people, of saving people, of caring for the lives on this earth? Where's all that gone? Well, we don't know because we can't think like God. But to bring faith back into this, what if, what if all this is in preparation to prevent the kind of pandemic that I'm talking about with smallpox or some other deadly disease, some other deadly virus that's more deadly than what we've just seen? We have seen the world respond and react to the coronavirus. But maybe this is a test run to prepare our countries, to prepare our health care systems, to prepare the public health initiatives that we have, to activate them so that we won't suffer an even worse fate with a worse virus. That may be the real 
outcome of this when we look back five or ten years from now, if something else happens, that we have prepared ourselves to bring together state government, federal government, the public health system, private enterprise, the Corps of Engineers, the military assets. We've connected with private industry around the world to produce the things that we need to help people, to be able to create therapies that minimize the impact of the virus, to develop vaccines in a rapid basis. We will have researchers doing this. So all of that is to say, we don't know what the purpose of this is. But if you're a person of faith, there may in fact be a broader reason and a blessing that this has created so that we will be much better prepared. Now, let's talk about how the federal government has acted so far. There's going to be a lot of criticism in Monday morning quarterbacking. The anti-Trump folks are already out there talking about what a horrible job he's done. Well, he's using the uh, daily briefings for a political rally, and he's attacking the press. And then he had the pro-Trump folks that are feeling we finally have a leader that's taken charge, somebody who understands business, somebody who understands distribution systems, somebody who understands how to get products from one place to another, the distribution chain. We finally have somebody who can call up leaders of industry and connect with them to produce the products and services we need. He offers some hope when the media just wants to be negative. I mean, just take a look at the hydrochlorine, chloroquine, whatever the name is, hydrochloroquine. How he identified that early on, and the media just jumped on him saying, he's not a doctor. How does he know? He's creating false hope. And now we're finding out that um, it has a lot of impact. It has a lot of change in minimizing the uh, impact of the, the virus, helping people to get better, saving lives. Is it the perfect cure? No. But when you have nothing else, he's saying, why not try this? So I think the Trump administration rebuilt it. A broken public health care system, as the president has said many times, I think is true. I think he acted early in shutting down transportation from China, although we still had a half million people fly into this country after he put that shutdown. But if he hadn't done it, we would have had more millions that fled China. One of the reasons that Italy has got a major problem is 100,000 Chinese live in northern Italy and have been flying back and forth from Huan. The Wuhan experience got spread around the world in a lot of different ways. And a lot of those people went to New York, which is why we um, had so many people flying in New York with the disease that carried it throughout that area. And you have a population that lives very close to each other. So it was very easy to communicate and transmit that disease. They were having big outings in Central City Park when they shouldn't have. You had a mayor of New York City that didn't want to shut down schools until the very end, that didn't believe that it was a major problem. He didn't want to impact the lives of New Yorkers. Terrible decisions. But 
it's going to be Trump that gets blamed if there's problems. And when he starts to open up the economy in a few weeks, we're going to see similar criticisms. Oh, he's opened up the economy, but we still have 200 deaths a day. Well, how many more deaths are we going to have from people who don't have jobs, the anxiety, the depression, the drug use, alcoholism, suicide? How do you deal with a family when you don't have a job? You just keep waiting for another government check. So somebody's going to make those hard decisions, and I'm thankful we have a president who seems to know and understand that and will make the decision regardless of the criticism that he gets. But I hope people appreciate it enough so that he gets another four years. I'm looking forward to that. Maybe we'll talk about that in a following subsequent um, discussion on the impact of the coronavirus. But I hope this at least has stirred some thoughts and ideas in your head. I'm not saying I'm right or wrong on all these issues, but I hope to be at least sparking some thoughts and get you thinking, get your juices flowing about how all this might affect you when you look back a year from now and see what changes you might have made in your own life, in your own job, in your own family. So I only leave you with the word to reach out to those family members. Touch family members that you haven't talked with, that you haven't seen in a while. And just say, how you doing? Are you guys doing okay? Can I do anything for you? And say a prayer for them. We'll see you next week. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.